0: morning it's not about golden calves anymore we've been in a series talking about sacred gifts versus toxic idols and Scripture's pretty clear about the command not to worship idols and we think well we don't do that we don't have the wood statues and you know we're not you know all into the the next american idol and who simon crow will pick whatever you know that's that's something else i'm not into that but what is it that could be an idol in your life that pulls you away from the sacredness of god and the gifts that god wants you to have in life and so it's really been a fun series and uh, i appreciate everybody's engagement in it over these weeks We are uh, taking a little bit of a turn today as we uh, look at a new idol with the whole money, sex, and power. We are going to be stepping into the subject of the idol of power. The idol of power. I don't know about you, but uh, I uh, often forget what the first commandment is. Why? Because I just sort of forget about the Ten Commandments. But we were given Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the mountain And God wrote these commands on stone. He sent those commands back down, and we have carried them through all these millenniums. And the command, number one, was to do what? You shall have no other gods before you. How are we doing on that one? How's America doing on that one? Now, there's nothing wrong with football. Some of you just got reminded about football with that video, and you're going like, maybe I ought to check the scores, that kind of thing. But you know, we all get consumed with something, and it's probably not that any kind of sport really becomes an idol to us, but there's nuances, and all kinds of things can can become idols. It's not just like what we've talked about in the last few weeks with materialism and money and sex and sensuality and physicality, relationships. I mean, it can be other things. It can be good pursuits. Sometimes family, we even say, has become an idol, and your whole life is consumed with the idea of raising that family, and that's important. But is that to be number one? Maybe it's to be able to help other people or to carve out a career that's beneficial in some ways, and you're consumed with that. Maybe it's exercise and and being able to have a healthy life and and live uh, well beyond maybe the years that you're expected. We get consumed with things. But the scriptures teach, God himself teaches, that you shall have no other gods before you. Commandment number one. What was commandment number two? Well, commandment number two, he really wasn't done with commandment number one. So he said, now that you're writing that in the stone, let me say number two to you. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below, or in the waters below, beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I don't know what background you come from in life today. Maybe uh, you have journeyed with seeking to worship the one true God for many years. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not been in church for a long time, if ever. Maybe you were invited by somebody and you're going to say, I'll check this thing out. Uh, I'm glad they got a uh, trunk or treat happening tonight. Maybe I can get some candy on my way out. It'll be worthwhile, right? I don't know why that you might be here. But my question to you would be, have you ever considered that God not only wants to be a part of your life, but that God wants to be first in your life? And could it be the challenges and the struggles that you're in right now are a result of idol worship? We've talked about it from Romans 1, where Romans 1 said that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal mans and birds and animals or reptiles. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So he gave them over to things. And what he gave them over was all kinds of things. Foremostly in that passage in Romans 1, we talked about the whole um, uh, sexuality issues and how that becomes prominent. But there's all kinds of things that we can be given over to. God says, if you don't want me, number one, then have it your way. And we spend a lot of years sometimes going down a path and having to stop dead in our tracks and say, you know, maybe what I'm pursuing in life shouldn't be, number one. God is a jealous God, it says. He's jealous not because he's egotistic. He's jealous because he is God. And what happened, not only in That day of Moses, or the day of the Apostle Paul when he was writing the letter of Romans. It happens today. We exchange something. And just like if you were to have your spouse exchange you for someone else, that would be quite annoying, grievous, right? God is jealous because he is God. And he created you and me. And maybe it would just do us right to pause and understand afresh and anew the Ten Commandments and why he put number one and number two there. He put them there for his glory and he put them there for your joy, your fulfillment, your happiness in life. Punishing the children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you say, where, where did that part come from? That's the second part to commandment number two. Front and center. Guess what? This whole subject of sacred gifts or toxic idols it's not just about you and your life if you don't get this right it can impact generations to come what yeah generations to come because our kids are watching us and our kids are saying well what's the most important thing to you Is it being popular? Is it being successful? Is it being wealthy? Is it having the right things around you to sort of get that prominent position? And you spend all your life and and I spend all my life doing it. They will watch. And if we don't get the first two commandments right, it will be passed down for generations to come. Oh, sure, somebody can break that. But you can see the lineage from one generation to the next. So it's a pretty serious subject that we're on. It's just not about the, you know, the popular subject of hey, money, sex, and power. It's about God, and it's about supplanting God with other things that lead us all amok and astray. So with this, we're going to take a turn towards this subject of power today. If I was to be honest with you, when I first stepped into framing up this series, I was more excited about this third one than I was the first two. The first two have been good, they've been solid, and you've been very receptive to them. But this third one, I see emerging more and more in our culture as an idol. And it may not appear uh, on big headlines, but if you look below the surface, there is a sense of entitlement, a sense of pride, a sense of position a sense of prominence all over the place you can find it in your workplace you can find it in your home you can find it on the national political scene you name it there is this emerging desire to think that power being the in group the in political party right all kinds of things that that that's going to be the answer And so the garb is put on, and the power is pursued, and it too will bring one to disappointment and defeat. Some of you are Lord of the Rings fans, correct? I know our live stream person today is back there. And uh, Lord of the Rings, they had all kinds of rings, right? Different rings for different things. But there was one ring that was pretty big and important. What was that ring? thank you Frank (laughs) the ring of power right (laughs) and Lord Sauron right I get that right he had the ring and if you put the ring on it made you powerful now here's the interesting thing about the Lord of the Rings and all that kind of thing there were very good pursuits there were uh, there could be the pursuits of hey I want to set of, a set of people free from their slavery. I want to protect somebody's land, right? I want to see uh, you know, wrongdoers punished. But when you put the ring on, the ring would, pull you into the consuming power, and it itself would not only become an idol, it would be an addiction, and there would be corruption that is brought to it. Maybe you've heard the statement that uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, there is some truth to that. Ultimately, it's not true because God has absolute power and he's not absolutely corrupted. But it's decided to see this, I, this uh, issue that if you're given power and prominence and um, you pursue that, you put the ring of power on, watch out because it will start to pull you into a direction. Maybe you've seen it in your own life, the life of a friend. Maybe the life of a coworker, or even a boss. And they have been given a place of prominence, authority. And all of a sudden, after a few months, it's like, hey, what happened to my friend? Where did you get that kind of egotistical edge to you? Or who do you think you are? You're thinking these thoughts, but something, you you see that power pulling them in a direction. And that's what idols do. They pull you in a direction, and that direction is away from God. Today, we've simply entitled it, The Empowerment for God's Purposes. The Empowerment for God's Purposes. What I want to say up front, though, in this is that power is not intrinsically bad. In fact, you and I as human beings were given power by God to do something with it. But it's not for our purposes, ultimately, it was for His if you were to rewrite uh, the reel and go back to Genesis 1, what do we find in Genesis 1? It says this, God blessed them, who? Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God created you as a human being to have power. So power is not bad. Power is defined as the ability to make things happen. Do you like to make things happen? You're ruling, subduing, and have a dominion over the earth. That was God's command. And he's put that within the heart of human beings to make things happen. And whether it's on the work front or in the home or in your own personal development, go at it. He's given you power. He's given you power over all creation. But this power was not in this dominance, overruling kind of way. It's in a stewardship kind of manner. Now, it was interesting during um, the... uh, Earlier days and centuries, you would uh, have an emperor or a king, and they would uh, put their uh, image into a statue and place that statue all over the kingdom, so people would be reminded. Oh yeah, yeah. There's it's a, you know, Julius Caesar. Oh yeah, it's, it's who we are to bow down. Well, to be honest, there is a similar manner with what God's done with you as a human being. He has stamped you with his image. And being made in the image of God, you have been given power and authority. And you've been given a calling to rule, subdue, and have dominion. And that understanding of rule, subdue, and have dominion isn't one of squelching and destroying. It's one, as I mentioned, of stewardship. And so as you are stationed throughout the world, in your particular place, in your workplace, in your home, in your social arenas, in your recreational worlds, that you become the image of God, not to point people to yourself, hey, look at me. But to point people to God, to become fully alive in Christ and to his mission. That's what we say we're about as the awakening church. More and more people, people awakening people, to become fully alive in Christ and to his mission. We are encouraging you to take all that God's given you to become what he wants you to be out in the marketplace, in the social arenas, wherever it's at. But it's not for you to bring glory to yourself and say, hey, look at me, or look at my dominance, look at my ability, look at my intellect. It's for you to point people to the one who has absolute ultimate power. And so when he gave this command to Adam and Eve, he had a plan in mind, and he had a plan in mind not only for the Garden of Eden, he had a plan in mind for all of eternity. This is the kind of thing that gets me excited. You just need to know that. Because you go to the book of Revelation, and in Revelation it says this, in Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons. Now, who's it talking about there? It's talking about Jesus. When we're on the final day, when we're on the other side, We will acknowledge who Jesus was and what Jesus Christ did, the Son of God himself. And then it says, and you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what was the plan behind that? You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve God. And they will reign on the earth. It's a small book I read when I was younger by Paul Belheimer, and it was simply entitled Destined to the Throne. And this book was so encouraging to me because I'm a big picture person. I, if I get caught up in minutia and myopicness, I really get anxious. You talk about the big picture. I get excited about that. A vision, right? They say a vision's a, the preferred picture of the future. And so this book helped me discover. Fresh and anew what is laid down in all of scripture but in in revelation here is this idea of what's going to happen we don't sit around on a cloud and play a harp in eternity we will continue to reign we will be co-heirs with christ scriptures teach that we will rule over cities that we will judge angels this is our destiny we're destined for the throne not our throne but we're destined to reign with christ in what he's doing and so this is all boot camp that we're going through right now. This is all training grounds. He has an incredible universe. Gary, do you do you think that there's other earths out there with people on it? I don't know. No one would ever know that. God would have a plan if He did or whatever, but maybe He picked this one little blue dot in the in the galaxy that we're in to place life and to redeem life. I, I, I don't know thats this stuff way out there so big. blows my mind. But I got a part. I got a part, Scripture says, that if I am in Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, who is God himself, come in the flesh to redeem people, and he's coming again, that I get to be caught up with him if I'm still here when he comes. But if I pass from this life, I will come down. Scripture teaches, and we will catch everyone up, and then we will move into eternity. And when we move into eternity, guess what? Power, baby! Power? God's power. And we get a seed in all of its fullness. And we get to rule and reign with him. You've been discouraged this week. Has it been a stinky week? Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your markets went down on your stocks. I don't know. Maybe you've not been feeling too well. Step into owning who you are. Made in the image of God. To rule, subdue, and have dominion over the earth. For these years, 70, 80, 90, as God may so bless. And then we step on the other side. We continue to reign with him. And we bear his image and declare his glory to the world. You are destined for the throne. That's good news. That pulls you out of some of your myopic, depressional kinds of states when you get the big picture going. So I want you to know this, that in this subject of power, it is a good, sacred gift. It is a gift that's been given to you and I as human beings, made in the image of God, but it's a gift that needs to be exercised appropriately and surrendered underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. But what does Satan do? He messes up every good sacred gift. And so what did he do with Adam and Eve? Hey, look at you. Why is God saying you can't do that? you need to usurp your authority and power here in this garden and take control. He deceived Adam and Eve. He deceived them about the power and the authority to rule and subdue that they have been given. God gave them free will. They took that free will to disobey God. Sin came into the picture, the fall of mankind, and we've been wrestling with the fallout ever since. This generation... I believe is going to have some of the most challenging work in the area of power because we're seeing power plays and we're experiencing it. Not just on a national level or a global level, we're experiencing it in workplaces, in our educational arena, you experience it in your home and raising your kids. Satan is not idle, and every generation he'll continue to orchestrate his deceptive devices. Don't get sucked into the power play of Satan. Don't put on the ring of power yourself. That ring belongs to God. But being made in the image of God, you and I have a place to exercise his power and authority here on earth. This week I had a beautiful opportunity to pray with someone who had been in some bondage and strongholds for a long period of time. And me and the other prayer worker, we um, had just a brief email after it, and it was just a simple word, Awesome. Awesome to see the power of God change and transform and start to bring healing to a person's life. But it wasn't because of what we did, it was because of what Christ did. But we exercised our authority in Christ to see his power active on their behalf. Destined for the throne, it's not only when he returns, it's now. May we rightfully understand and steward the sacred gift of power. With that, I want to just have us turn in our scriptures today to a story of one who had a lot of power. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Babylonian king from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., He reigned and ruled, and uh, his brief reign, the brief reign of the Babylonians, wasn't all that long, actually, is recorded in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 1, it begins to lay things out. And then in chapter 2, it talks about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a lot of power. You see, they came into prominence on the hills of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And they actually ransacked Israel and Jerusalem, and they took captives from Israel and Jerusalem. They took the cream of the crop. They took their strongest minds, their most gifted people. One of those was Daniel, and that's why we have this recording, because Daniel was taken as an exile into Babylonian captivity. Modern-day Uh, Babylon uh, is in Iraq and so east of Israel they were taken captive and they sat underneath as King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But Nebuchadnezzar with all this power it says this in chapter 2 of Daniel. In the second year of this reign Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, he did not tell them what his dream was, but his dream was about a tall statue and that it had been crushed with feet of clay and was no more. And he was here, he was fearful and he was anxious as to whether or not this was depicting his kingdom and his reign. But what he decided to do was to not to tell those to come in what the dream was, He felt that if they were really good at interpreting dreams, that they could tell him what the dream was without him telling them. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody put that before me, that would be a bit of a scary proposition. I want you to interpret my dream. Okay, tell me your dream. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Well, how can I interpret your dream? Because if you're really good, you can tell me the dream and the interpretation. Now, that is a difficult place to be put. Even more difficult was he got so upset when he had these sorcerers and these musicians that they said, well, this is crazy, king. Nobody can do something like that. That he put out a word that all of them were to be killed, and anybody in the lands that was supposed to be some intellectual, wise kind of person would be killed if they could not give the dream and the answer to the dream. Well. Daniel was on that list, even though he was a foreigner, and they came around and sort of uh, put it out there and told him what he needed to do. He, too, fought back and said, really, are you kidding me? I have to come up with the dream as well? He actually didn't say that. He actually settled in and he said, okay, let me uh, figure this out before God. Daniel was a godly person. Now, what I want you to notice first here with Nebuchadnezzar is that this man of great power was in a predicament where he was scared to death himself. He had fear. And it's interesting, a lot of people that are in positions of power are actually there because of fear. And if they didn't get there because of fear, they carry fear. Why? Because you get put up on a pedestal or you have a lot more than others and then you fear that you will lose things. And so a lot of powerful people, people that you may get indignant with or frustrated with, somebody that's maybe overseeing or lording things over you, having dominion over you, see through them as human beings and a lot of times you'll see that they just have fear. Do they have pride and arrogance and control issues? You bet you they do. But what's underneath that? they don't have security. They have fear. Maybe you're in that predicament today. Something in your life is causing you to act out in ways that you know are not good, whether it's in the home or on the work front in school. You just got to do the gut check and go, man, what's going on with me? And a lot of times it's fear. You know, we have rooted groups, discipleship groups, and we just recently walked through a, week, a couple of weeks ago, and what is, what is some of the things that's weighing heavy on you? And I had to confess that there was fear in my life about some things. And that fear was causing me to cower in some situations and not trust God's sovereignty. And, and I'm like, wow, there we go. Well, here, in Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's front and center with this. He's, he's a, one who's powerful and mighty, but he has fear that's going on. He's actually a a classic case of political power in many ways. There's insecurity that's a part of him. The British poet W.E. Hensley, Henley, he had a a leg amputated as a teenager, and yet he went on to have a career as a critic and author. And as a young man, Henry uh, defiantly penned the famous uh, poem Invictus. Do you know about this? you understand that it's latin for unconquered he said this it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll i am the master of the fate of my fate i am the captain of my soul that statement is not true in fact, as much as you think you have control over your life, 95% of your life you don't have control over. You don't have control what century and generation you were born into. You don't have control over the family that you were born into. You don't have control over some of your capacities, whether they're intellectual capacities or other kinds of gifts. You don't have control over sometimes the circumstances that are around you. There are tons of things that are out of your control. And sometimes we worry about all those things, right? You are not the captain of your own soul. You are existing underneath the sovereignty of God. And Henley himself, uh, he uh, had a daughter die when he was five years old, of which he never really fully recovered. You learn real quick. Nebuchadnezzar felt maybe he was losing control. And here he had this dream that he was telling no one about. He feared losing his kingdom. He feared what might happen to him. He was a man with insecurities. Daniel, when he's told, he slept on it. He woke up the next morning having had a dream, an inspiration, and a divine moment with God himself. He says, don't kill people. He goes to the king, and he Tells the king about the dream, what it is, and he tells him the interpretation. In Daniel 2:31, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue, "...was made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you watched, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet." of iron and clay and smashed them then the iron the clay and the bronze the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer the wind swept them away without leaving a trace gone but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. He predicted it was a prophecy about future times, about other kingdoms that would come. And if you're into prophecy, there's a lot of understanding of what those kingdoms were that followed. But this dream that he had of this statue that was made of these different type of materials was crushed by a stone that was not made by human hands and that stone represented the kingdom of god it represented the kingdom of god and and so daniel as he spoke this to him he explained this dream to him that after you another kingdom will arise inferior to yours next a third kingdom one of bronze will rise over the whole earth and he began to unpack the story And then it says this, in verse 44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. I don't know if that appeased the fear of Nebuchadnezzar or not. What do you think? Nebuchadnezzar got right-sized real quick. His fear was legitimate because he was only a man. And that empire, the Babylonian empire of which he ruled, was not an empire that would last. In fact, it would shortly crumble. It would be crushed, a feet of clay. You and I live in kingdoms today. But there is only one kingdom that will last forever. And that is the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the kingdom to which we give our allegiance, to which we worship. I was reminded in this of a famous saying by Malcolm Muggeridge, some of you may know who he is, he was a British journalist, famous person, He was editor of Punch Magazine, a satirist magazine, and he was an atheist, but he became a Christian. And um, in one of his sayings, but not of Christ, he says this, So it relates to his time back just a couple decades ago. We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and the fall of the great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I've seen my own countrymen, British countrymen, ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that, quote, God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a craze cracked Austria and proclaimed to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian brigand uh, in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world, as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ahsoka, and more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America... Wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that the Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and the scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England now bankrupt, now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by the fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways war- roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of the disastrous campaign of Vietnam and of the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris, of these solemn supermen and the self-styled imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. The one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Friends, don't be discouraged by what's around you, if you're a child of God, you are part of his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. Christ reigns supreme through every historical, current event that may happen. Nebuchadnezzar remembered, remembered in infamy in four chapters in a book written by Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had power, but he didn't know how to steward that power. Time doesn't afford for me to look at chapter 3, but you know what happened in chapter 3? Well, let me tell you this, what he, had, he said there, what happened following Nebuchadnezzar. Before I go there, sorry. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. What happened in chapter 3? It's good that Nebuchadnezzar at least had that moment of enlightenment. In chapter 3, we have the story. Do you know what the story is? Come on, you Sunday school folks. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar thought it would be a good idea to build a 90-foot-tall statue that was 9 feet wide of himself. And have music played and everybody come and worship that statue. You want to think, do I need to take you back to Daniel too? Still defiant and stubborn. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were peers of Daniel and operating it. They said, we will not bow down. So they threw them in the fiery furnace, right? And when Nebuchadnezzar looked in, after the people that threw them in the furnace died because the furnace was so hot, he looked in there and they weren't bound anymore. They're walking around, all three of them. And then there's a fourth one. They say it's a preeminent uh, uh, presence of Christ, maybe was walking with them. But they were freed because they could not be harmed by that fire. Nebuchadnezzar had check number two. Whoa! kind of God are you serving and then what happened in chapter 4 in chapter 4 is interesting he had another dream and, and this dream was about a big tall tree that went to the heavens and it stretched out really broad and it had all kind of animals underneath it finding safety and security and the birds of the air and then all of a sudden a voice came that says cut it down cut it down and so this dream scared him as well He brought in Daniel. Daniel, can you interpret this dream for me? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar was not a good story from there. It says this in verse 34 of chapter 4. At that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. I raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was destroyed. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. I wish I could share all that story with you there, but you know what happened to him? Lean in, I'll tell you. Daniel showed up to interpret this. He said, this represents you, and you're going to be cut down with a stump left, but it's not going to be uprooted. And you are going to... Well, i just read it. "'Your majesty, this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the drew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes.'" The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that you're, then that your prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard the interpretation, he said, thank you very much. No deal. He was walking around on his palace He was struck down. Just 12 months later, he ended up doing what that prophecy of Daniel was predicted. He ate with the animals and grass. He went insane. He went mentally ill. And then he repented and he turned. And that's where this verse of 34 comes in. He praised the Most High finally. And he said this of God, Yahweh, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is now Nebuchadnezzar speaking. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? at the same time that my sanity was restored once he repented. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and the nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heavens because everything he does is right. and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So ends the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a king of great power in the midst of a world that had a plurality of all kinds of gods. Did he finally bend his knee to the one true God after these events? Like what he spoke? I was asking somebody right before church that reads a lot in the Old Testament and I asked him, do you think Nebuchadnezzar really worship the one true Yahweh and we'll see him in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. The friend I asked, he thought maybe so, but we don't know. Sometimes when you lead a confusing life, you die a confusing death. And he was confused a lot about power. He thought he had power. And God kept showing him that only Power comes from the Most High God. We are stewards of God's power for God's purposes. Once he repented, once he helped the oppressed and did what Daniel said, he was restored. Pride will come before a fall. But many times, pride will stay with a person and they will never rise. Yesterday in men's group, I closed with this. It was a passage out of Ephesians. I thought it was interesting. It's where we were at in Ephesians for our men's group on Saturday morning at 8. Be glad to have you come, men, if you want to come. This was the passage, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. He mentions power a lot in Ephesians. He says this, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that you may have power. It's okay to have power. Power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, it's the power to to grasp the love of God, how wide and long and high and deep it is. And then extend that love to others. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I close with that passage for us, and then I close with one final story. I don't know if any of you are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, but the Chronicles of Narnia are children's stories that depict truths. Some of you are familiar with it, but in these stories, there's always a story below the story, the children's story that's being told. And in the work of C.S. Lewis, In the voyage of the Dawn Trader, there is a caricature, a character that's presented by the name of um, Eustace. Eustace is a young kid. And Eustace, well, he's sort of an ornery kid, and he's getting in trouble, he's a bit cruel, and he's always seeking to tease people and to manipulate people. Some would say that he was a, a Nebuchadnezzar in training. And one day, Eustace, he discovers a big treasure pile, and when he falls asleep on this treasure in a cave, after he was elated that his whole life could now turn around with ease, with all this wealth and the disposition he has, he wakes up the next morning and he's a dragon. He wakes up the next morning and he's a fearful dragon. To his horror, a hideous dragon. And he was a dragon sleeping on the hoard of all this treasure, revealing his greedy heart. The dragon was a part of who he was, and he was no longer a young boy. Well, there was a desire for him to be able to Get rid of this after a while and he kept trying to pull off the dragon skin to be himself and he wasn't accomplishing it he just he just wasn't happening he couldn't undress himself from this dragon and and so he ends up meeting up with a mysterious lion and the mysterious lion says well let me help you try to take it off and you know he said well i've tried to take off a layer here or there but it's still me And so the lion said this. He said, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, he used to I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now of what I'd become. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they didn't hurt. And there was there it was lying on the grass, only it was much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been, the layers I had peeled off. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been, I turned into a boy again. The mysterious lion, some of you know who it is. It's Aslan. And Aslan is the representation of Jesus Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. And what happened with this young boy who took all of his nasties and his arrogance and and his meanness as a little boy and became a dragon because then he hoarded over all this greed of wealth and became something he didn't want to be. And then he tried to peel it off. What Aslan did, Jesus Christ came and he tore it apart and he brought up that little boy again. Power, pride, self-control, arrogance, a domineering spirit Needs to have surgical work, and the surgical work has to be done by Jesus to let Him tear that apart for you to become who God wanted you to be. Are you in a place with your disposition this morning that you've become someone that you don't want to be? And could it be that this is an idol that you've fallen to? Power. May Jesus Christ be the one who restores you back to who he intends for you to be. Made in the image of God to rule, subdue, and have dominion, but as a steward of God's glory in God's image of God himself. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, we are challenged by the world around us when we see so many power plays things that have happened in our own life where people have harmed us, maybe even unknowingly. Lord, may we not put on the ring of power, but may we stay submitted to you and allow your humility to work its way through our life every day in every interaction, every relationship. And may we move forward today and tomorrow and this week with grace. We want that power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love and to be able to serve out of that love in the power of your Holy Spirit to other people. Lord, may we not take what is rightfully not ever ours to own, and that is your power and your glory. If there's anyone here today, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to them, encourage them in the sanctity of the moment in which they are praying, and call them to themselves and let them know, let them know that you're there to bring healing. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to take their places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. Your Connect cards, on the back of your Connect cards, if you have prayer concerns or if there's some spiritual commitment for you to make, on the heels of that verse that's there, in Ephesians, is a benediction. And I want to give you this benediction. This benediction represents, um, I think, an all-inclusive thing. It's a benediction that uh, we often speak and say over people's lives. But this benediction, in the middle of it, talks about this issue of power. And the issue of power is a subject matter that Um, we need to be endeared to. And we're going to come back next week. We have communion next week. We're going to send ourselves around the Lord's table. We're going to see what Jesus did with the subject of power in his life because he had power. But he chose to use his power in a certain kind of way. But with this benediction, it's a benediction of blessing over your life. And instead of me speaking this benediction... I want us to speak this benediction together over all of us. There is a place to come and pray afterwards if you want to pray with someone, but would you stand with me and let's just declare this benediction over us as a church body. You ready to speak it? Hands up, Receive from the Lord. And now to him. We'll start again, because you've got to get your vocal cords going. I Ready? Bold and strong. And now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to His power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Seed at night at Trunk or Treat. God bless.